So we're, we're heading into this new series called String Theory, and basically this was an idea that we'd come up with by, uh, by the staff, came up with this together. Because I, we were asking the question, or I was asking the question, what, what does it mean to worship? Like, what, is it, what does it mean to be a worshiper? And, and we all have these kind of different ideas, and we've probably heard many, many sermons uh, on this topic. And we, uh, sometimes we've heard it said that, that there's a, a lifestyle of worship. Worship is a lifestyle, that everything we do is an act of worship. And that, uh, I preach that quite often, and that's, that's true. Um, and then we talk about worship. You know, Will was nice enough to fill in for us this morning, and so we talk about like a worship leader, and, and we'll ask, you know, at church, how was worship? And, and we'll talk in all these different kinds of terms, and we think if, if, if I said you were going to worship me, that would have a different weird connotation. You wouldn't think that you'd sing to me. You'd think that you'd, you know, have to like come down and bow before me, which is a fantastic concept, and I'm all for it. But, uh, but you'd, you'd have a different kind of concept of if you're worshiping that or if you're worshiping an idol or, or, or something like that. There's just, worship is just a giant term, and, and it can mean so many different things. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to unpack what does it mean to worship? What does it mean to be a worshiper? What does it mean to be uh, created to worship? In 1907, uh, Albert Einstein uh, started, he, he got finished with his theory of relativity with e, e equals mc squared, that whole thing, and he decided to take on gravity. And the scientists at the time thought Newton had already taken on gravity with the apple falling on his head. But what Newton was really discovering was the effects of gravity. What Einstein wanted to figure out is why is there a gravitational pull? Why, why do we have the earth and that the earth is like sitting in the middle of nowhere and there's a moon jamming around the earth? And then why at the same time the moon is jamming around the earth? Einstein uses the word jamming. Uh, while, while that's go, kind of go, rotating around the earth and it's spinning and the earth is spinning and then all of that's going around the sun and spinning. And he's trying to understand, how does this work? And so he began to look at space in a different way than had previously been looked at before. And so what he was saying is that space is is kind of flat. And and when you put mass in it, it, it's almost like a fabric. It It begins to kind of bend and shape and curve. And so if you look at something like uh, the earth kind of would go around, the earth has its own moon, and if you see the earth kind of sitting in space, the moon is just like a marble kind of just rolling around the earth, okay? Now, for me, when I first heard of this concept, uh, it just blew my mind. Like, there's no way the earth is flat. But, But what happened was scientists began to prove these equations over and over and over again until it became like, wow, that's really the way it works. Again, it's totally beyond my pay grade. I, I don't really understand any of it, okay? But, but this happened, and, and, and this other scientist, you guys are looking at me right now like, what in the world? Where are we going with all this? It's coming, trust me. At the same time, uh, Maxwell was working out his equations on electromagnetic force and all this kind of stuff. I, I love this stuff. I wish I were smarter to understand more of it. But scientists were trying to come up with an equation that would kind of combine it all. They call it the unifying equation. The thing that kind of just like gets down to brass tacks. Like, can we come up with an equation that gives us kind of the answer for everything? The unifying equation. 
And so this guy named Theodore Kaluza and this guy named Oscar Klein, they're these scientists that come up with this idea of string theory. And it's this idea that there is another dimension. <laughs> I, know, I know that. There's another dimension out there, okay? And so all their formulas needed these other dimensions for, uh, for them to work. And so some equations came up with five dimensions, some came up with six, come up with seven, uh, some came up with 11, okay? And the idea is that let's say you have like a, um, uh, you have like a candelabra, okay? Like a candlestick. And you go into that candlestick, into the metal of that candlestick, and inside that metal, you're going to keep going and going and going until you get to atoms, which are made of protons, neutrons, and electrons flying all around. Well, imagine if you could go farther and you could discover why in the world we even have those things. And so what scientists believe, they, what they theorize, some physicists theorize, is that these are these tiny strings that vibrate. And that they vibrate at a certain frequency and they make a certain thing. And if you're a scientist out there, do not might write me a letter telling me, well, actually, I, I know I'm getting most of it incorrect, okay? I have a tiny pastor brain. So, but there are these tiny little strings. And so this is another dimension. They're so small, you can't see it. And so they do their best. They have this thing, uh, this, this laboratory in, in Geneva, Switzerland. And they're, they're, they're taking atoms and they're crashing them together and trying to measure out, you know, d- does debris fly out from an atom, which would be cool, I guess, but I, I don't know. I'm, I, that, that's not, again, it's beyond my pay grade. I start thinking to myself, God knows string theory. Like God knows the quote-unquote unifying equation. God knows how many dimensions there are. God knows what the little strings, if there are strings, are made of. And what makes up the strings, he knows what makes those up. And God knows about all the planets, and he knows about gravitational pull, and he knows about all these kind of things. And I, I started thinking to myself, and I started, I started wondering, now, if God knows all that stuff, isn't he worthy of worship? Isn't he worthy of all that we have? A God that big that can say, oh, you tiny little dude. You thought there were 11 dimensions, but there's really 150,000 dimensions. I don't know. But God understands string theory. I want to give you the verse that we're going to be looking at for all six weeks. This is kind of the unifying uh, verse that we're going to see. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's say this together. It's uh, Colossians 1.17. Let's say it together. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We're going to say this verse over the next few weeks probably about 50 times. And I would hope that you could memorize it. I, I'm fairly confident you can memorize it. But I'm hoping that you would. You'd write it down. You'd put it somewhere. Because this is the basis of worship. Who God is. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is why I don't get nervous about science and religion. I think they can coexist wonderfully together. I think Christianity and science make really great partners in a lot of ways. Because the more they discover, the more we find out about how great God really is. The more scientists examine and question and, and, and postulate and bring in experiments, the more we realize our God is incredible. I mean, what we know now about the universe points to God, as far as I'm concerned. 
I hope they find the little strings. I hope they collide the atoms together and all of a sudden little tiny microscopic debris flies everywhere and they go, this is so far beyond anything we can imagine. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So check out, uh, uh, Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah uh, chapter 55. It says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God talking. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And this is what he says. As the heavens are higher than the earth. Now, when this was written, we didn't have near the information about the heavens and the earth as we do now. God did. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What I want us to get this morning, and we're going to see how this plays out in a, in a story that happened to Paul and some of his buddies, is that the more we can understand how great our God is, the more worship is going to be infused into who we are. It's difficult for me to worship when I'm focused on myself. It's difficult for me to worship when I'm focused on others. It's difficult for me to worship when I'm focused on my circumstances, but it's easy for me to worship when I'm focused on the majesty and the splendor and the love and the power and the omniscience of God. He was before all things, and in him all things are held together. As a matter of fact, your one point for this morning, I totally cheated. I didn't even come up with something fancy. Your one point is that verse. If you look at your, at your point at the top of your outline, it's that verse. You can just fill it in. Then you got it all week long. For my thoughts are, higher, are, are, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Here's the way I kind of see it, kind of a fun way. That God understands pi to the infinity digits. Like God could just keep going and going and going. Pi, this is the relationship between the circumference and the diameter of a circle. It, the number just keeps going. God understands pi. And we understand pi. That's a good way for us to understand that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. He gets all of this. Now, listen, before we get too like eclectic and string theory and all that, what I want us to keep going back to over and over again in the next six weeks is whatever you need to do, find out how great God is whether that's studying your Bible, whether that's studying the universe, whether it's studying what, whatever you need to study, whether it's just studying anatomy and just saying, God created all of this. And then on top of it, he has a special place in his heart for one section of creation, you and I. He wants to spend eternity with us. That is so worth worshiping. So let's get uh, started in this section of Scripture. Uh, It's in Acts chapter 16, if you want to turn there. I'm going to show you uh, the guy who wrote that verse. Uh, He is before all things, and in him all things uh, are held together. Uh, His name was Paul. And um, he went and he planted a church. He planted a bunch of churches. and, And at the end of his life, he's in prison, and he was writing letters to those churches. And that verse we just read was the letter he wrote to Colossians, the church, uh, the Colossian church. And then he wrote another 
book right at the same time to a church in Philippi called the Philippians, okay? And so this is what was on Paul's mind when he wrote those letters. We're going to read a story, the things that were on his mind while he was planting that church in Philippi. It's in um, Acts 16. Let me just set it up for you uh, real quick. Paul goes on a missionary journey with Luke, uh, Silas, and some other guys, and they start planting churches wherever uh, they land. And they ended up in this church in Philippi, or this, play, this uh, town, Philippi, and they meet this lady named Lydia, and she sells purple clothes, purple garments and fabric and all that kind of stuff. Now, a lot of scholars think she was wealthy because purple dye was a very difficult commodity to get at the time. And so she, um, they say she was wealthy. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. It's just what you'll read. So Paul ends up talking to her, and she comes to Christ, her and her whole family. And she says, would you come and stay at our house? And so he, she persuaded them to do that, and all of a sudden, this church began to like, be birthed in Philippi. This church out of Lydia's home began to be birthed, and things began to happen. And one of the things that happened was this slave girl would follow them around, and she was demon-possessed. And she would say, listen to them. They're telling you the way of salvation. Now, normally, if you were starting a ministry and somebody was saying, listen to them, you'd be really stoked about that. Like if I started a ministry and somebody was saying, oh, you got to listen to this guy. You know, trust me, he's awesome. But then that guy turns out to be like Charlie Sheen. It might not be that helpful because people don't necessarily respect his opinion on the subject. But this is what was happening to Paul. Now, watch, watch what happened. This is so cool. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled, the New American Standard says annoyed, he became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. What a weird ministry model that you'll only minister until you're so annoyed, you just, like, could you imagine as a pastor, you get a young couple and they're like, we really need to meet with you, we really need to meet with you, our marriage is going, and finally you go, Fine! I'm so annoyed. You, respect your husband. You, lay down your life for your wife. Now get out of here, right? It's like that's a sense. But Paul's planting this church. He's working. Now listen, here's what happens in this particular case. The kingdom of God just came in and did major work in this young person's life. This, This other dimension, if you will, that we can't prove, we can't see, we can't show that it's there that the kingdom of God came in and saved this little girl from the bondage she was under. Now listen to me. If we're starting a church and and all of a sudden we cast out a demon guy or a demon out of somebody, we don't cast out the demon guy. He's just a guy. We cast out the demon, right? We'd be so excited because we would have seen in a real and extraordinary way the kingdom of God showing up on earth as it is in heaven that the spiritual realm was actually affected by what was going on here. You know how encouraging that would be for a church to go through. Now watch what happens to Paul. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Isn't that incredible? Here's this little girl is tormented by a demon. And all these guys can think about is how they lost 
their way to make money. See, I believe this is a great story of how the kingdom of the world and all its importance and all the stuff we look at tries to squash out the kingdom of God. That we get so caught up in what we see and what we experience and all this that that God wants to do a great work and we just squash it out. And so what happens is they bring them to the authority of this world, the marketplace. They bring them there and uh, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Here's what happens. They start beating Paul and Silas. And the crowd joins in and gets this kind of like mob mentality, and they start beating them. Now, what's just happened? They cast, isn't it funny? I think to myself, oh, well, just, if it would just be a miracle, then every, why, why doesn't God just perform a miracle then everyone will believe? Well, or beat you up, either way, you can figure it out. But the mob comes and starts beating them, and the magistrates say they should be stripped and beaten and put in jail. And so that's exactly what happens. Paul casts a demon out of a little slave girl, releasing her from that bondage the stronghold that the kingdom of Satan had on that little girl. And he ends up being beaten. And you think to yourself, man, which kingdom's stronger? At this particular point, it seems like the kingdom of the world is stronger than the kingdom of God. And so they strip him, they beat him, and they put him in prison, and they tell the jailer, you better not let these guys out of your sight. And so the jailer gets nervous, and he puts them in the inner dungeon, it says, and he puts shackles around their feet. And this is where they are. Now, let's go back to our church analogy. We plan a church. We get started. You know, there's a few of us here. We get together, and we cast a demon out of somebody, and all of a sudden, the Garden Grove Police Department comes in and, like, drags us all to prison, beats us up, you know, but not like that, because that's not really hard at all, but be, 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 I don't know why I use that as the beating, you know, you know plays drums on us, right, but, but beats us up, puts us in prison, we think, man, what is going on? God did so much, and now we're here. What, what would be on your mind? I started really trying to get into if it really happened to me, where would my mindset be? And kind of as we talked a little bit about it last week, I'd be praying fervently to escape. And si- I'd be with Silas going, okay, dude, are, can you get your shackles undone? You know, can you pull on the wall? Or I'd be planning my escape. I'd be praying. The prayer chain, I'd fill out the flap, and it would say, get me out of prison, right? Pray that I get out of prison. What does a worshiper do? What is someone who just gets this concept of a God that's so great and so worthy of praise and so majestic? What does is, what is a worshiper do? What does someone like Paul do? Because Paul, Paul was kind of a fiery dude. He'd be the one you'd expect to kind of like figure out a way or, you know, bring some fire down or whatever. This next verse is just fascinating to me. At about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Backs bloodied, sitting in shackles. We'll see in a verse I don't, I don't have with me, but if you read through this, it was dark when, 
when what's going to happen happened, they asked to bring in light into the situation because it was so dark. He was singing and he was praying. What, what, what in the world? How do you have a life like that? That life of worship. How does your life of worship transcend your circumstances? How can you in the midst of it, when it's really bad, when, when you get the diagnosis, when you get the letter from the IRS, when you get that report card and you realize, I've tried the hardest I can try, and these are my grades. How do you make that step into just, you know what I think I'm going to do? I want to sing. <laughs> I want to sing hymns. Isn't that great? It's like your wife comes home and says, honey, you know, things just aren't working out. And you're just like, oh, oh you know, like, all right. How do you, maybe, no, maybe you might want to do that. I don't know. But we'll, you, can, you can sign up for counseling. We'll get that figured out. But right? how, how, how do we get there? So listen to what it says. And the other prisoners were listening to them. See, a worshiper's life, when we can worship in the midst of this kind of stuff, on a basis of how strong God is, who he is, his eternal attributes, the fact that he's invisible yet present and all this kind of stuff. When we can get there, people take notice of a life that transcends all those problems. Especially these prisoners who were probably beaten and put in shackles themselves. And so Paul, about midnight, that's the other thing that's amazing to me, is that I'd be pretty tired uh, after casting the demon out and being beaten. Listen to this. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Isn't that amazing? And so you think, well, there, finally, finally the kingdom of God showed up and just, you know, and you just like picture Paul just like, like coming out of, the, out of the thing and just like, you know, killing people to get out. And it's like, yes. Well, this is exactly what the jailer thought was going to happen. And so the jailer, because if you're a jailer and the people escape, they just kill you. And so the jailer takes his own sword and he's about to kill himself. And Paul goes, wait, 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 wait. We're all here. We're all here. Yeah, the earthquake was cool. Man, my chains fell off. This is awesome. But we're not going anywhere. God's ways are way, way higher than our ways. And his thoughts, it doesn't even matter. So the jailer calls for the lights and he rushes in and he tumbles before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? What, 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 do, what do I do? I need a life that is not dependent on whether or not things work out for me. Like, how in the world were you able to sing and to pray? And then when you had a chance for it to escape, you just sat there. See, a, my, a worshiper, someone who it just invades everything, has an effect on those around us. Oftentimes, that becomes our witness. And so he, he says this, what must I do to be uh, saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in the house. That's so cool. Why weren't they thinking about their beating? 
Why weren't they thinking about their wounds? Why weren't they thinking about escape? Why weren't they thinking about how unjust this was? Why weren't they writing letters to their congressmen? Why, why, why weren't they fastening pickets together to, you know, no more magistrates, whatever, you know, whatever their picket is? They were all about the kingdom. They were all about the kingdom rushing in and transforming lives. Paul was about it when he cast a demon out of that girl, and he's in it right now with the jailer. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. It's so cool. It goes on and it says that the jailer brought them into his house. He made a meal before them and, filled, and they were filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. This guy, in like a span of two hours, went from being nervous about his life and man, if these prisoners get out and I, I'm going to take my own life to being filled with joy because God came in, the Spirit of God, the Kingdom of God came in and changed him and his whole, his whole family. Hey, that, that's a worshiper. That, that's the power of a worshiper going into situations. Let me, let me ask you a question. What's happened to us? Like, what's happened to the church? What's happened to me? Where I can get so sidetracked in my worship because maybe my circumstances aren't lining up the way that I thought they should. You know, I, I know you guys don't do this, I, but, but there was a time back when I was a very baby Christian. I think I was only this big, tiny Christian. Where I would leave church... And I talk about the worship as though the band or the worship leader or the guitar player could possibly have any impact on how I worshiped. Like I talk in terms of, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of, I think we did those songs last week. I mean, I, again, I was a baby. Ba- I mean, I, I know that this would never happen here. Like, there was a time when I'd be like, you know, the pastor kind of went long. Again, never happened here. But, like, I think as Americans, we've gotten so used to being comfortable and being catered to and having it all work out in our way and our time frame and our thing and our that, that we miss the kingdom of God. And this is not a, like saying, so therefore, I can preach an hour and a half and you better be happy. Well, you better be. But my point is that, that listen, what if we were a people, a church? What if I ran my household in a way that it was just a house of joy and a house of praise no matter what happened? I think this is what God's calling me to do. And I'm hoping that in the next five years, uh, next five m- weeks, <laughs> we can discover this together. If it takes you five years, God bless you, okay? I just want to show you one other thing because it's really cool because you think, well, if the kingdom of heaven is bigger than the kingdom of God and, you know, and, and nobody cares and if we're going to be let free and we don't go, you know, maybe we shouldn't care about anything about the kingdom of the world. That's not the truth. We still have an impact to have just in day-to-day in commerce, in our schools and all this kind of stuff. Now, watch what Paul does. It's so cool because he doesn't escape, but... but um, the magistrates come, they send officers to the jail the next day and say, okay, you can be released. Like, thanks, we could have been released like seven hours ago just by walking out. But they say, you can be released. And here's what Paul says. This is so cool. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we were Roman citizens. If you were listening to the soundtrack at this point, it would go, 
dun, dun, dun. Like, this is a big deal. Romans don't beat Roman citizens without a trial. And Paul was a Roman citizen, which is what got him killed at the very end, but we'll get to that later. Even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us in prison, and now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? Mm-mm. No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Like you think, well, Paul's so spiritual. Well, yeah, he is, but he's also fiery. I love that about him. He says, no, have them come. So the magistrates, are bu- they find out that they're Roman citizens. They're super bummed, okay? And, and they, they kind of let them go. And watch this last verse. This is so incredible. And I, I'm hoping this for us as a church that we can get this in the next five weeks. Okay. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met the brothers and encouraged them. And then they left. Their work wasn't done. It was all about building up the church. Now watch what this act of worship has done. First of all, they've seen a miracle. They saw the earth shake and their shackles come off. They saw a family come to Christ, an entire family, and they got baptized. They got to jab some of the magistrates, right? Kind of like get down and dirty with them. And then they got to go back and encourage all the other people. That's what a life of worship is all about.